Welcome to the SAMOP Specialty Spotlight Podcast. This podcast was created to help inform military medical students about experiences and opportunities in military medicine. We aim to interview physicians either currently in or retired from the military from all branches of service in various specialties. Today, we are fortunate to have Dr. Ross with us. Dr. Ross served as a flight surgeon in the U.S. Air Force and is currently the course director of military medicine at Rocky Vista University. How are you today, Dr. Ross? I'm fine. How are you? I am doing well. Thank you so much for joining us. Good. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, what medical school you attended, um, where did you go for residency, et cetera? Sure. So I I grew up in Montreal, Canada, and uh, uh, my family moved to uh, the Seattle area when I was about 12 or so. I went to junior high, high school, and college there. I went to medical school at what is now Western University of Health Sciences, which is in Pomona, California, the College of Osteopathic Medicine of the Pacific. And in fact, I was actually in the first class there. So it was great. Then I went from there to the Chicago College of Osteopathic Medicine, and I did a rotating internship, which is like a transitional internship. Then I served in the Air Force at at that point in time for what turned out to be three years of active duty, then two years of reserve. And then late, after five years after graduation, I did my emergency medicine residency at LSU, Louisiana State University in New Orleans. And I followed that hyperbaric medicine fellowship there at LSU as well. And during that time, I was reserved in the Air Force as well. Nice. So can you... Tell us why you decided to go into the specialty of your choice and specifically the branch that you chose. Well, in the military, for me, I'd always loved airplanes. And I ended up getting along the way in med school a private pilot's license and an instrument rating. But I always liked airplanes. So I knew I needed a way to pay for school. And I knew that it was going to be a military route, and I just thought the Air Force would probably be the best way for me to go because of the, the aircraft environment and everything. So it was an easy choice for me. Uh, I never really thought about it too much, and that turned out to be true. It was great, actually, for me, and runs in my family. I have a sister who is an Air Force pilot now, Boeing test pilot, and I have a son who's currently an F-35 pilot in the Air Force, So so there's something that goes on with aviation in our family. So that's why I picked what I did. It was just really that simple. Knowing that there's some drawbacks in the Air Force, even back then, there wasn't as many residency slots as there is typically in the Army and the Navy. So that was a disadvantage, but I wasn't sure that I wanted to do a military residency anyway. Can you tell us a little bit about your day-to-day as a flight surgeon? Yeah. So... Any of the flight medicine courses, I would assume, in in Army, uh, Navy, and Air Force would be similar, but you learn a lot about pressure-related diseases, and I think it was probably a reason why I chose hyperbaric medicine, because that was big in New Orleans, and it's directly related to some of the things that you learn about in flight med. But you also learn a lot of rules about what aviators can take and what they can't take medication-wise, what disqualifies them from flying, et cetera. And I really liked that. And I liked, you know, hanging out with the crews a lot. I really did. I enjoyed it a lot. I flew 
as much as I possibly could with them to see what they were doing and what their their life was like at work. So it was great. And, and actually, back then in the 80s, we all, all of us at our small hospital in Oklahoma, had to do what they called medical officer of the day or MOD. And even though none of us really were trained in emergency medicine, you know, we would have to kind of cover the hospital's ER a weekend a month. And I actually saw occasionally some sick people. And even though that population is pretty healthy, every once in a while, somebody would slip in there who was sick. And I was kind of impressed by that. And I realized again how much I didn't know about that type of medicine. I knew about healthy people generally and pressure-related problems, but not that much about sicker pathology. And at, at this point, you didn't have a specialty, correct? Right. So I hadn't, I couldn't decide on one, which was why I decided to go ahead and pay off my HPSP scholarship, which it was only a three-year scholarship because we had come from Canada and I had not naturalized to a U.S. citizen. We weren't eligible to apply to be an officer uh, without naturalizing to U.S. citizens. So I spent my first year in the Los Angeles area going through the Immigration and Naturalization Service to naturalize. So I only had a three-year scholarship and I paid that off and then got out of active duty and stayed reserved for six more years. And then what were your roles and responsibilities in the reserve? Well, I was a flight surgeon. I was lucky enough to be associated with some really cool squadrons and really cool airplanes. I think back both at my active duty base, we had big transport airplanes, the C-5, the C-141, the KC-135. But we also had two sports car little airplanes that I would get to fly in quite a bit called the T-37, which was a side-by-side twin jet. I guess because I had a license, I, I could fly single engine prop. I picked up the T-37 pretty well, and it was about my speed. And a flight instructor pilot would go up with me, and I, but I would get to do everything from startup to takeoff to aerobatics to landing. And that was really fun. And and then down in, at Carswell Air Force Base, we had the F-4, which is a great airplane that sort of holed over from, at that time, from Vietnam and is now retired, then followed by the F-16. And then in New Orleans, the A-10, and that was followed by the F-16 and also quite a bit of F-15 flying, too, and, and lots of other airplanes. You know, every once in a while, I get to take time. Most of the time not, but I'd, I'd observe them, and I often got into the simulators. They would let me fly the simulators, and those are the world's best video games. They really are. <laughs> I don't know how much they cost per hour, but they're a good time, that's for sure. Can you share with us some of the highlights of your time as a flight surgeon, some of the best experiences that you had or some of the best days? Actually, yeah. One time... Uh, I feel really good about this. We had a, actually, my one of my best times happened when I was not a flight surgeon. I was serving in the little ER, which I said was, we called that the MOD. And this 29-year-old guy came in. He was a, like a maintenance guy working at night. And he'd been seen in the family practice clinic, and he had a lot of supposedly some GI discomfort and everything. And I think came in with his sergeant, and I think they 
they thought, you know, he's probably just trying to get off from work. But there was something about him, and I really couldn't put my finger on it that, you know, kind of was concerning to me. And, you know, I ran an EKG. We really didn't have blood tests there, at least not ones you could get back. I ran an EKG, and to me, it looked okay. And it was back in the vintage. You guys don't know those this, but it used to come off of the printer all rolled up. So it would be one lead at a time, and you kind of unroll it. So it wasn't a nice laid out flat piece of paper. So you had to kind of work at it. So, you, you know, anyway, I didn't see anything wrong, but I thought I should put him in our two bed, what we used to call the special care unit just overnight and keep an eye on him and run some EKGs upstairs and everything was fine. And then early in the morning around probably four or five in the morning, they called me and said, so-and-so is having more pain. You should go see him. So I did, and he looked worse. And this time we repeated his EKG, and now he was clearly having an MI. I didn't know what to do with him because we didn't have cath labs or any of that. But I called up this guy who was about the same age as me at the civilian hospital who I'd met a couple of times, and he was an internal medicine specialist, and asked him what he thought we should do. And he said, well, tell you what, why don't you load him up in an ambulance, come down here to the civilian hospital. And we'll give them this new drug we have. It's called streptokinase. Streptokinase is a thrombolytic like TPA, but it preceded TPA. And I had not really heard of it back then. This was probably 83, 82, something like that. And so that's what we did. And we gave it, and he did lots better. And then they got him a helicopter to come from Oklahoma City and fly him out to a cardiologist. And I felt really good about that. Um, you know, just a person with, you know, one year internship, really not knowing very much. I had some instinct about who was sick there. So that was, that was a really good case that I'll never forget. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. Hopefully as we all continue on this journey, we have similar experiences. We're able to you will. catch things like that. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's part of the problem with medicine is that, you know, people are only too quick to point out people's mistakes and errors. And it, anybody that does this for a period of time, you will undoubtedly help people, whether it's something you knew or maybe it was by accident or, or whatever. But there'll be more days when if you really think that you help somebody, then you hurt somebody. And Part of our problem in this society, especially in medicine, is that we tend to focus on the negatives and the, the positives don't even get talked about. And there are plenty of them and they will occur. And it's important to kind of keep that as a balance. So I've made my mistakes for sure. But that's one case that I remember, you know, as a positive for sure. Yeah. Within that vein in medicine in general, why did you ultimately decide to become a physician? In general, for me, I like science. So, uh, you know, even in high school, I had a great chemistry teacher and I liked it. She made it interesting and I wanted to do well. And I thought, you know, but I don't think I really want to live in a lab. So how could I employ sort of this technique and skills that we're learning somewhat, you know, in the lab and, and employ them on people and, you know, for their benefit in so that kind of led me to medicine. Now, I remember that very distinctly in high school and just tried a matter of persevering through pre-med, you know? Mm -hmm. 
And then within medicine, why did you ultimately decide to to specialize in uh, emergency medicine? Yeah, it's an interesting question. As a med student, I really didn't like emergency medicine. I had a nice experience as a third year uh, where I got to do quite a bit, and I just never got into it, but the attending was great and let me do a lot, so I can't complain there. But then in my fourth year, uh, I did a couple of electives that I really didn't like at all, and I just thought, I can't do this. And then as an intern, when we were rotating through the ER, we had this horrible schedule where you would work from midnight to noon. Nobody does that anymore. Your night shift would be midnight to noon, and then somebody would work noon to midnight. And at noon to midnight, you can tolerate it pretty well. But midnight to noon is tough because you're fairly busy throughout the the night. Then at about six or seven, your circadian hits and you really want to go to bed and you're tired. But And the ER started to quiet down, but now people are starting to come in and they're building up as the morning wears on. So it was that last three or four hours that it was brutal as you're trying to stay awake and the volume is picking up. So I didn't like that schedule at all. So my conclusion after after those two experiences was that I didn't want to go into emergency medicine. But when I was at Altus and you know working, I worked a little bit in their civilian hospital moonlighting, and I realized that depending on the situation and the circumstances, patients can be nice and they can be very grateful. And the other thing was is that they presented not always, but generally with more acuity than what I was seeing in the flight medicine world, not surprisingly. Uh, Pilots and other aircrew get screened very carefully, and they should be healthy. But the medicine was a little more interesting and less predictable in the emergency department in this small hospital. But I also knew I didn't know enough emergency medicine. I needed to uh, do a residency. Back then, in the late 80s, you could actually grandfather for the boards um, still. And that means that you, if you had enough hours, hundreds of hours, and uh, you could verify it, then they would let you take the boards without having to do a residency. And I actually could have wow. done that. I could have taken the boards without a residency, but I knew that I, I wanted the experience of being in a residency, and I knew I would learn more. And so I felt like if I was going to do this, I'm committed and I'm going to do the residency. And that's a decision I never regret at all. You know, I had a great experience in New Orleans, terrific experience. I can't really say enough about that, actually. What do you specifically like about EM? And is there anything that you don't like about it other than that? Oh, yeah, both. Yes, to both. I like, you know, I like the fact that Again, we're, we're in this business, hopefully, to try to help people. And sometimes you help people in a very substantial way, um, but often not. Often it's a small thing. You know, you got them connected with a doctor, a specialist that they can see as an outpatient that they weren't able to get on their own. So it's a small victory, but it's a victory nonetheless. And then obviously there's the occasional thing where you actually save a life. It doesn't always happen. And lots of times it doesn't. But so there's there's big victories and small victories, and you kind of have to find pleasure in that, you know, that maybe you were able to help somebody. What don't I like? I don't know if it's just confined to emergency medicine. I think it's true of other specialties, but I think that 
medicine has unfortunately uh, been taken over a lot by metrics and corporate stuff. And I think, you know, there are time limits and restrictions on people that are kind of unrealistic and make the job very stressful, uh, more so than it needs to be. I mean, really, when you boil it right down, medicine is, I think, is about spending time with patients and getting to know them a little bit and getting their history and getting some of their fears addressed, coming up with a differential and all of those things. And things that cut into that you know, are stressful because they potentially cause you to miss things that you wouldn't otherwise. That's a disadvantage, I think. So you mentioned time limits and restrictions. Can you um, yeah. discuss that a little bit more, the specific examples? Yeah. I mean, I think if you're in like family med, you know, that it'll depend on the volume and, and rules of the practice and whoever's running the practice, but you might get maybe 15 minutes with a patient, you know, so even though they maybe have a half an hour worth of stuff and complaints and now they want to talk about this, that, or the other thing, a patient, and you have to cut them off and say, sorry, I, I can only deal with your sore throat today. That's mm-hmm. what we have time for. You're not being mean. You're, you're just trying to stay on a semblance of schedule, but you wind up being kind of the bad guy. So I think there's that. And emergency medicine, there's all these things that they've created, door to doctor time and throughput and time to mission decision, all of these metrics that may or may not contribute anything to quality, but are measurable. And that wasn't always that way. That's for sure. Then there are time limits on certain drugs or certain procedures being administered. Certainly a, a stroke time frame, you know, if the person qualifies for TPA, you know, it should be given by X, they should be in the cath lab by Y, you know, if they have an MI and that kind of thing. So some of it's helpful and some of it, frankly, isn't, I don't think. Okay. What advice do you have for students choosing a specialty or choosing a GMO tour similar to flight surgery? Well, I mean, you know, some of the time in the military, the military makes the choice for you. So sort of, you know, it's an oxymoron in a way. I think, you know, it helps to be flexible. If you can be flexible and and try to find the good out of a, a GMO tour, if, if they offer you that or they tell you you're going to do that, you know, finding the good in that rather than lamenting. I mean, most GMO tours are three years, I believe. And yeah, that puts you behind. If you want to do another specialty in a fellowship, that delays you three years, but it also can mature you a lot. And I I think that it helped me get my residency. I do. I think that they thought that, well, I wasn't, and I don't recommend waiting five years like I did. I, I was five years out of med school. I think there gets to be a time degradation kind of function that that probably works against you. But I think they thought, well, you know, I have some experience, you know, I'm going to have maybe some leadership potential within the residency and, you know, maybe some teaching potential and all of that. So I think, you know, it didn't hurt me at all. And I don't think it did hurt me, but, but I also was pretty flexible and agreeable and I was really happy to get my spot. So if you look at things that way, I think it will help a lot. But if you're unhappy because, the military made you do a GMO and you were planning desperately to be a dermatologist, might be angry. And uh, I would just, you know, you 
you may be not much you can do about it. So try to learn the most you can. And, uh, you know, and, and you may, if you're undecided, like I was, a GMO tour really is a good way to start, I think, because you can maybe use that time to figure out what you really do like, or if you're not sure, and, and what you really don't want to do in terms of specialty. So I think trying to make the best of it. And for me, it turned out great. I I wouldn't, I don't know if I would, I wouldn't wait as long as I did, but otherwise it was a good experience, I think. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that and for that advice. Yeah. Speaking of leadership, how do we develop officership while in medical school and then throughout our careers in the military? Yeah, well, as you know, at RVU, we try to do that by bringing mentors in. And it's actually amazing the mentors that we have available, high-ranking physicians, people who have been far more successful militarily than I was, but, you know, are pretty amazing. And so that's that's a good way. Develop um, a strong SAMOPS chapter that allows students within a school to assume leadership within their class and within the SAMOPS structure is good. Another way to do that. And at your leadership training in the various services, they typically provide, I think, some leadership training or suggestions and everything. And and as you know, we brought a, an individual who came from the Navy training to RVU last year, Dr. Broker, and I'm hoping to keep him coming either virtually or in person because I think he has some some good techniques to offer. But his his suggestions are not just germane. They can be used in other areas besides just the military. I think these are times when it's a little early for a med student right now on a bigger scale, but these are times to be thinking about leadership development, you know, in the times of COVID and everything. And mentors are great. So we, I don't know what the other school situations are, but we try to bring in, you know, mentors who are most commonly physicians, but sometimes it might be a PA who's a high-ranking uh, medical officer. Sometimes we'll bring in high-ranking enlisted, you know, chiefs and, and things like that to talk about things from their perspective as much as we can to kind of get our students familiar with a taste of military life and the importance of being a leader in the military, importance of being a leader on the team, on the healthcare team and within the military structure. Given that you have a lot of experience with both military and civilian training and medicine, mm-hmm. what are the differences between the two? And are there lessons that you learned from one setting that you were able to use in the other? So my experiences with the military, just to be clear, did no residency or internship in in the military. All of my academic internship and residency were done in civilian institutions, but I trained a lot with active duty military in preparation for exercises and mobility stuff, and also with the reserves as well. I think in both cases, just for like mobility training, the more you take it seriously, the better. The more it's emphasized as being realistic, and the less goofing off you do, the more you're likely able to retain and use the the training that you got in the event that you're in a situation where you really need it. So I would say that, number one, in terms of our overall 
military training for deployments and stuff like that. I always paid a lot of attention to what, what they were teaching us. I took it seriously because, you know, every time we were training, I thought we were going somewhere. And, and I thought, you know, I don't want to get over there and not know what the hell I'm doing. And then the other thing is I did do quite a bit of academics in military hospitals. And I, I can't really say I remember much difference. You know, I, I wasn't a resident there. But I remember being at Wilford Hall on cardiology, and the only difference that I can remember is we were in uniform, you know, traipsing around the hospital and going to the cath lab and stuff, unless we were in scrubs. And the medicine was the same, basically, that I can remember. I did a psychiatry rotation at Wright Pat, and I remember that and real well, and I would say very similar, and I did general surgery at uh, Travis Air Force Base. and. I've learned a lot there. We were really busy. I know that. We worked hard. And I would say, you know, the actual medical training, at least during my era, was very similar. I couldn't tell you one from the other, except that one, you know, people were wearing uniforms most of the time. And some people in in other places, they weren't. But other than that, I, I thought it was really good. And had I known what specialty I was going to go into, and had I really had a target, I, I would have applied much more seriously, but I didn't. And, and it was just at the time in my life that had nothing to do with the fact that it was a military residency or a civilian residency. It was just, I didn't know what I was going to do. And by the time I got around to applying, I was already out of active duty. Is there a particular reason that you decided to to spend as many years in the reserves as you did? I loved it. I miss it. And I still miss it. And I I still feel guilty that I'm out in a lot of ways. I would have loved to be a sea cat that didn't exist when I was in. But, you know, a few years later, I was working, you know, with a bunch of national leaders at the American College of Emergency Physicians. And the president of the American College of Emergency Physicians at the time was a colonel in the Air Force. And she talked to me a lot. And she said, you ought to you ought to go back in and become a sea cat. That's what you should do. CCAT is critical care air transport. So starting with the 1990-91 Kuwait war, Operation Desert Storm, and continuing through when uh, George W. Bush was president after the Afghanistan-Iraq mess, what they were doing is they were getting people out of the war theater as quickly as they could. So they'd, they'd get them out via helicopter from the combat support hospital, then they would get them to like a C-17, which is a big transport jet, and fly them typically to Germany, to the big hospital at Landstuhl, Germany, and then on to the United States. And so they needed people who were critical care specialists to fly with the patients all the way back to the States. And Dr. LeBaron over in Utah did that. Um, He's anesthesia by training. To me, that was like a huge mission and just really, if you could do it and pull it off and keep people alive, you know, you were performing quite a service. But that was around 2006 or seven, I think, you know, I, I, I was, I don't know, probably 55, a little less. Yeah. And they wouldn't allow me back in. I mean, I tried to get in so I could do that. And so I would have liked to have done that. And had I stayed in, if I could have toughed it out, you know, I might have had a chance to do it. 
But as I said, you know, we were having family and the priorities were were tough. And I have to say the emergency medicine schedule, because it's potentially 24-7, 365, isn't as regular as it would be nice to have to be able to plan your drill a weekend and everything. And people in the reserves and guard, they're going to deploy. You know, they were doing that with regularity. So you have to be willing to do that. But yeah, I miss it. And I, I would have loved to have done that as well, which you had to go to the University of Cincinnati to do some extra training to do it. Um, do that's you, where they train you there. Miss your time as a flight surgeon or in the reserve specifically or both? Both. I really do. I mean, I really liked the people I worked with. I liked, I liked, you know, my hospital commander. I liked most of the doctors I worked with. And I liked the crews and we took care of their dependents. You know, a lot of the time you don't in flight medicine and they have the option. They can either go to a family med or wherever, or, or they can come to you. And it usually depends on who's got the quickest opening on their appointments and stuff. But I would take care of their dependents on occasion. I just liked being at the squadron. If I could, if I had a day where I wasn't in clinic, I was down at the squadron and I was hanging out with them or going up in the airplanes with them doing whatever. I just, I just kind of miss the camaraderie and I miss the travel. We traveled a lot and I miss some of the missions we did or just training missions and stuff. It was really fun. So, I mean, I miss that a lot. You know, there's no replacing that on the outside. I don't think real easy. So, you know, I don't, I don't miss the fact that by and large, you know, uh, people weren't ill, but kind of thought they were. Doc, when am I going to get back on flying status? I have this cold. It's just not getting better. And you know, I don't know. But uh, for pilots and air crew, those kinds of things that are nothing for us become a big deal because it's affecting their ability to fly and work. And so you would think, oh, my gosh, you know, it's get a tissue and wipe your nose. You'll be OK. But for them, it, it's a it's a big deal. And, and it is because you Generally, you know, you're going to take them out of the airplane for three or four days and stuff until their cold is better because you don't want them to get like a sinus block or something. Yeah. So some of that got old, but just spending time with them. And I think we had some fun socializing that military does. Their socializing is really they like to dress up in costumes. At least they did. And you know, it's a good time. It's a fun thing to do, especially if you're at a place where there really isn't a whole lot going on except the Air Force Base. So makes sense. Thank you. Thank you for, for sharing all of that. And for my final question, I want to ask if there are any pitfalls we should avoid as physicians and officers. Well, you want to be careful. I think one of the things that people need to realize is that you're an officer 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so you want to be careful not to get yourself in trouble or do something stupid that maybe really was on your off time, but somehow gets into social media or whatever, and then other people see it. So, I mean, enjoy life. You're only going through it once. So, you know, have fun with it. You don't have to be a nerd, but you do have to be careful. Uh, you know, don't do dumb things with uh, stuff on social media that somehow could find its way back to your commander or somebody else or because it could affect your career. And you want your career to end on your terms, not theirs. You know, when you decide it's time to get out, whether it's retirement or, you know, nine years like it was for me, whatever, 
you want to be able to walk away and feel good about it. Um, and you don't want to be harassed or chased out. I would just say that. I, I think that's really important that even though you're out of uniform, you're still an officer in your service and you just need to be kind of aware of that. And if you do that, then I think you'll have a really rewarding career. And I really commend all of you, both at RVU and other of the DO schools around the country for serving. I know that people like it was for me, it was kind of a financial expediency, but I also believe that to us like me really want to serve and we respect authority and uh, may not always agree, but we respect it. And we look forward to the opportunities that this can bring. So thanks for serving. And I, I don't forget that because that's, that's really important to have many students who will become physicians serving in the military and doing a really good job in medicine as physicians. Thank you so much. Thank you for all of those insights. So that wraps up our episode with Dr. Ross today. Thank you so much for your time and sharing your experiences with us future military physicians. For those of you listening, if you have any recommendations for the podcast or anything you'd like to hear in particular, feel free to email samopseducationchair at gmail.com. And thank you for tuning in.